You're listening to the Christian Post Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Showalter. Although culture is increasingly saturated with occultic-themed programs, books, and movies, much of Western society still seems to lag behind with regard to public knowledge and discussion surrounding all things demonic. And many times people stay quiet about their experiences with this for fear of being considered a kooky, fringy Christian. But today, pastors, priests, clergy, and lay ministers, all of whom have observed firsthand accounts of this, demonic possession and deliverance, can succumb to the strange and horrifying effects of spiritual warfare. To address this touchy subject, I'm joined today by journalist, commentator, and digital TV host Billy Hallowell, who's covered thousands of the biggest faith and culture stories. And having written over 12,000 articles on faith and culture and politics, he is not a stranger to hot-button, controversial subjects. His latest book is called Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcism, and ghosts, and it addresses several key questions about this mysteriously real, yet all too often misunderstood, topic. The book dives deep into theological foundations pertaining to the supernatural and relies upon first-hand accounts, newspaper reports, and seasoned Christians for commentary. I'm so glad to welcome him as my guest today on the CP Podcast. Billy, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, you know, my first podcast when we launched this um, here on here at CP was with Michael Heiser, and the subject was angels. And so I've been wanting for a while to address sort of the other side of that, and I think he's actually written a book about demons now, but your book really caught my eye. And one of the things that I've said in previous episodes is that the contrast between good and evil seems to become—it's just becoming starker by the minute in— our culture. I mean, whereas in previous years it was easier to sort of blur the line, now things just seem to become becoming increasingly clear. I mean, choose this day whom you will serve kind of thing, light and darkness. Um, there's just the contrast is so stark. First of all, I'd like to start on how'd you get into this subject? Because, you know, a lot of people do want to avoid it, as I was just saying in the introduction. They stay quiet about their experiences with this because it does seem strange. And yet we in the West, I think, can sometimes have a real arrogance when it comes to this topic because most of the world has a very vibrant, you know, operative understanding of the spirit realm. And I just, maybe we think we're so sophisticated that this is just all of it's kooky or whatever. But what got you interested in this subject and how'd you get, how'd you get your start? Yeah, you know, it's so crazy because, so I was working at The Blaze a few years ago as a faith editor, and this topic would come up all the time. It was something that, you know, it, it would emerge in, in various stories, people would make claims, but it was really uh, probably, I think it was 2014, 2013, 2014, there was a case out of Indiana, and we were covering it at The Blaze because at the time, this particular possession and exorcism story um, was actually making international news. It was being covered by everyone. Mm -hmm. And it was because there was documentation, right? That rarely happens. A lot of times you just have somebody's, you know, own experience. They're saying, hey, this happened, or hey, my house is making weird noises, and I've had these weird experiences. And, you know, so that was sort of my entry point into covering it. Now, if you had told me, oh, you're going to go and write a book about this in a few years, I would have laughed at you at the time and said that you were crazy. Right. Um, but this this opportunity came um, twice, actually. And there was a publisher that really wanted to do it. And I, I prayed about it. 
And, you know, I just didn't feel right about it at the time. And so I didn't do it. And then last year, it was really strange. Um, this opportunity came again. I wasn't seeking it. And I really just sat on the opportunity for a few months and I just prayed about it. And I said, listen, if I'm going to write a book like this as a Christian, I want to make sure I get it right. You know, you don't want to go out there. Anybody can go out and write a scary story and try to freak people out. But this is, you know, if we're, if we're to believe the Bible, which I do, you know, this is a major part of the New Testament. And understanding, as you were saying, this difference between good and evil, it's a really big responsibility. And so I just wanted to go into it the right way. And, and in the end, I prayed about it. I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I didn't go into this, and I think this is important, feeling as though I was some sort of expert who was going to go and lecture everybody on what to think. I really went into this as somebody who is a journalist who likes to look at difficult topics. You know, right. my first book was about, about the end times. And so I, I have a history of kind of looking at these topics. So that was, that's sort of a quick history. I never intended to tackle it, but I'm really glad I had a chance to do so. Well, it is a critical subject, uh, again, particularly because the demonic is marketed to young people so much these days. I saw there's this series on Netflix called Lucifer, and, you know, there's all sorts of witchcraft is fun, and, you know, this is, it's so insidious the way it sort of seeps into people, and because we believe that the spiritual realm is real, you know, Ouija boards, all, all this, that's been around for a while, but it really, we, we do need clear thinking on this. More on a more broadly philosophical note, uh, why do you think uh, the West is lagging behind in their understanding of this? When I think about this, sometimes I wonder if there's just this false anthropology, this false view of the human person as fundamentally a, a brain on a stick. What was it? The French thinker Rene Descartes said, "I think, therefore I am." This European Enlightenment philosophy that has sort of been like a seemingly natural supposition that we just bring that you know lens that framework to how we approach the bible when in fact the bible is an ancient near eastern text and they had a very they understood that demons are real i've heard jp moreland out at biola talbot you know, seminary saying that you know this is most of the world gets this why has the west so misunderstood this subject for so long you know, I think there there are so many pieces of that to to unpack. I think this increasing obsession with the material, what's before us, and we're seeing this happen throughout American culture. We're seeing it in the rapid decline, and I talk about this in Playing with Fire uh, quite a bit. When you look at the numbers in 2007, you know, 78 percent of Americans were calling themselves Christians. Well, we're down to like. 66% now, 68%, and that's going to continue to decrease. And some of those people we know are cultural Christians, but mm -hmm. when you when you start abandoning even the title of it, it's because you've moved away from that worldview enough to say, hey, I don't really believe this. And so we're very distracted by Hollywood and media and these narratives that um, are obviously counter-Christ. They're very much here and now, do what makes you feel good. And so we, we focus on the here and now, but yet the irony of this whole thing is that Hollywood is obsessed with these topics, right? I mean, think about from, I would say, the end of September through November, almost every scary movie that comes out has something to do with demons and evil and at least ghosts, right? This idea that something is happening around us. And why do they put those movies out? Well, they put them out because innately 
at the core, I think for all of us, we want to understand those things, right? We're, we're so distracted as a culture. They're not part of our culture. Um, and so we want to avoid them in practice, but we don't mind having them in our entertainment because they're exploring something that we all inherently know there's something to. We want to be freaked out. We want to be scared. Uh, but we in, we enjoy kind of secretly many of us exploring that. And, of course, it's the wrong way generally to explore because of how it's being presented. But there's a really interesting dichotomy there. And so I, want, I want, wanted to point that out, and I do so in the book with Hollywood and looking at that kind of content. Um, but I do think, again, you go to other places in the world. You go to Haiti. You go to places in Africa and interviewing and talking with people who have spent time there. This is very much part of the normal life of right. not only acknowledging this, that this exists, but actually exercising demons and deliverance ministry. I mean, these are these are terms that are a part of church life. And so it's a fascinating, fascinating difference when you look at what's going on here. What do you think are the three or four or some of the main ones? I, I'll just I say three or four, because I was taught that some of the most significant you know pathways for a Christian even, for a demonic being to get into his or her life would be like if you're deeply involved in the occult, if you start playing with a Ouija board or, you know, get into witchcraft, um, that that's one way you can become demonized. Another way is, you know, sexual sin and perversion. And a third way, you know, bitterness and, unconf- and unforgiveness can be a very big open door for those kinds of influences to be operating in someone's life. Uh, first of all, do you think a Christian can become demonized? And if so, why? Uh, and how would you contrast that from this term possession that's thrown around? Um, and how and how can people get free? Yeah, I mean, that is, it, those are all really good questions. And I think when it, when it comes to whether or not a Christian can be possessed, let's start there, because that's the most extreme sort of a variation of this. We have all these different terms. We have possession, we have oppression, and really, when we talk about possession, we're talking about a, a rare scenario. It happens. So when I say rare, I'm saying that most scenarios are not full possession. A full possession is a person who is, com- is they're not in control of themselves, that mm-hmm. what is inside of them can actually overtake them, can force them or lead them to do things that they, that they would not normally do, um, and really can destroy them from, from the inside, right? Now, oppression or a person being demonized, anybody, you know, especially according to the experts that I spoke with, anybody can face this. Christians face oppression all the time, that there may be these evil forces weighing in on your life, pressing in on you. There may be things happening around you. So it's a different situation. It's not possession. It's, they're not inside of you controlling you, per se, but there's an impact on your life. And so when you talk about and I'm obviously simplifying some very explosive and large terms, and there are very different Christian traditions that take very various viewpoints on these things. Uh, but when you look at all of this collectively, um, it, it's really, really fascinating. There are some who will say, well, a Christian could technically be possessed if you believe that a Christian could lose salvation. Now, this is, right, the, yeah. this is a big debate. If a Christian could lose his or her salvation, well, then, of course, they could allow, allow themselves to slip so far into the abyss that they could then experience that. But if you don't believe that a Christian can lose his or her salvation, then you you really generally wouldn't believe that the Holy Spirit could live alongside evil right. in, in that state of full possession. Mm-hmm. So 
there's a lot to unpack there, but you asked that question of, you know, what is playing with fire, right? Like, right. you know, pun yeah. intended. What does it mean to actually allow this sort of thing into your life? And what's so fascinating to me is that we're living in a culture right now where sex and sexuality and all these issues are being pushed on people. And we're, we're very desensitized because Hollywood and media and universities and all of these areas of communication outside of the church are really pushing all of these things on us. So there's a lot of, I think, spiritual issues happening just in general in culture, right. and they wear us down mm-hmm. to become more open to all sorts of different things, right? But the very specific things you mentioned, the Ouija board, which I'm happy to talk more about. I have a whole chapter on the history of the Ouija board, and it's very fascinating and a little eerie. Um, but, but you know, trying to communicate with the dead, Okay, that opens a door potentially trying to going to see psychics to try to understand what's going to happen to you in the future. Right. Doing the very things. And and I'm not making these things up. If you are a Christian and you read the Bible and you look very closely at it, it is very clear that we are not supposed to be playing around with these things. They are not meant for us. And so not harmless. Right. Exactly. Parlor games. You know, we're playing Mm -hmm. parlor games. Well, not. Not so much. Now, the vast majority of people might not have an issue, you know, with obviously, let's let's be honest, 99.9 percent of people are not going to become possessed in their lifetime. But people do. OK. And but but lots of people are facing oppression and other issues of spiritual warfare, and they may not even realize it, including including Christians. And I think it was really eye opening to hear from people who are on the front lines who are dealing with this daily you know, deliverance ministers who actually find that there are a lot of Christians and a lot of people who who actually need healing from these things. They need to confront the things that have happened in their lives right. or the actions that they've taken in some way. So, And if you don't believe that any of it's real, you don't really have anything to offer people who are hurting. Well, exactly. Yeah. And then how do you solve the problem, mm-hmm. right? If you, So if you're going to come at this and say, well, every single issue, and by the way, we have to be careful with mental mm-hmm. illness. Of and, course, yes. You know, it, 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 we have to, right? Um, but if we're going to come at this and, and say that, oh, no, these people are always crazy, there's nothing else going on, and there truly is something else going on, then we are leaving people in a really dire situation without a real solution. Well, I'd like for you to talk more about Ouija boards in a minute, because I do think that is just one seemingly innocent way a lot of people get ensnared into this kind of thing but you mentioned a moment ago the indiana case uh that and i think i remember even seeing the washington post cover this topic Mm -hmm. talk about how this was you know talked about in a public secular forum and where there was documentation about this this phenomena uh and how that inspired you and you know generated conversation amongst your fellow journalists and what all that what all that entailed yeah, you know, the, the case in Indiana centered around a woman, her mother, so it was a grandmother, a mom, and three kids. And they lived in this rental house, and they almost immediately claimed that they started having issues in this home. Now, this happened in 2011, this alleged possession and exorcism case. Now, it wasn't until a couple of years later that this case came to the forefront. And what happened was there was a reporter from the Indy Star, and she became aware of the story. And the Indie Star is not going to run an exorcism story unless they can actually, unless they actually have documentation, unless they have enough meat to put that story together. And what was so phenomenal about this is when they published it, there was tons of material. There were people coming forward and saying, "I saw this," 
And these weren't just random people. They were sheriffs. They were police officers. They were CPS child workers. There, there were all sorts of people in this case. <clears throat> now, when I say they saw it, what did they see? And this is what makes this so remarkable. And whenever I tell this story or I bring it up, it almost feels bizarre and strange to say it because it sounds like it's out of a, a Hollywood movie. There is a CPS worker who claims, and, and actually let me just back up a little bit. This mother, her central claim was that she was experiencing possession. She was experiencing these bouts with it, and it would jump from her to her children, and they would act erratically, and there would be all sorts of different issues. They went to a doctor's office one day um, because obviously people did not believe that there was, this was a possession. She was telling people they did not believe it. They thought that there was abuse going on. There was some sort of issue in the home. So they're in a doctor's office, and the kids start acting insane. <clears throat> and the doctor is on the record in this Indie Star piece saying, I was scared. I had never seen anything like this before. So the behavior was so erratic that they sent the family to the hospital. CPS gets involved, child care. And at the hospital in a room interviewing the mother, a CPS worker and a nurse, and they filed this in official government paperwork, claim that they watched one of the children walk up a wall. Mm. Okay. Now that's, again, this sounds ridiculous. It sounds like it's out of a Hollywood movie. It is in an official CPS report that is filed with this case. And so I review all of this in depth in the book. And so this case ends up bringing the Catholic church involved into this. You've got a priest who's performing exorcisms on the mother. And you also had police officers who were very, very skeptical who found themselves involved in investigating this case, going into the home, looking at things, and they too are on the record talking about the things that they saw and they experienced. And so this is a very deep story, so I'm giving you sort of little tidbits of Mm -hmm. it, but but what, what was so fascinating to me is as I was writing Playing With Fire, I reached out to a sheriff who was involved in this, and he's no longer a sheriff, he's retired. Um, And he was very... At first, sort of like, I don't know, you know, I want to be very careful, which I totally understand about speaking out on this. But I have an extensive interview with him and I have an extensive interview with the priest involved in this case. And they have backed up every detail that was reported on this story. And so that's rare. You don't get that very often. But in in the Indiana case, you really did. Let's talk a little bit now uh, about some of these simple ways in which people innocently get into this, a Ouija board. What's what's that all about, and why do you think so many people just start exploring it that way? You know, it goes back to that innate interest, right? This is not something we talk about in practical terms in this country. <clears throat> we talk about it as a game. We talk about it as a parlor game. We like right. to watch scary movies, but a lot of our church is completely silent on these issues of evil, and that's something else we could talk about. But, mm-hmm. you know, the Ouija board... When I was growing up, and I'm sure it was the same for you, it was known as, as this parlor game. You know, you get to get a, get together with your friends at a slumber party and try to summon the dead person. And, you know, it's just it has this sort of folklore, fun and games kind of feel to it. But one of the things as I was writing Playing With Fire that I wanted to do was to kind of track the history. Like, what is the history of this board? Great. We know you can buy it on Amazon. You can go to a toy store. You can get it. But where did it come from? And... The, the real history of it, which I go into detail in the book, it started in the 1800s. It was called a talking board, and this was a tool that people were using to try to communicate with the dead. Mm. And so the very thing we use it for as a game, it was something that a psychic, um, allegedly her name was Helen Peters, she came up with this. And, of course, they started marketing it and using it. 
And the really sad thing about this is that during wartime, this is something that has actually been used a lot. There's sort of an influx of use because people are desperate. You know, after world wars, they want to communicate with their dead loved ones. And so out of desperation, this tool becomes something that people use. And of course, over time, it becomes a tool that, you know, gets sold to toy companies Mm -hmm. and becomes what it is now. Mass marketed and make money off of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, I would also, you know, I I would tell you that the thing that struck me as one of the most bizarre details, and it's just a random detail, but I started kind of looking through old newspaper clippings, the Associated Press and the New York Times, and I'm talking late 1800s, early 1900s, and you start to discover these cases where people will say things like, I played with the Ouija board, or I played with the talking board, and, you know, I committed a murder, and it told me to do it, and you get these weird stories that, of course, Skeptics are going to say, oh, that person's a crazy person, right. you know, and we can't go back. We can't go back and track it. But but one of the things that stuck out to me is that a guy named William Fold, who owned the factory in 1927 where the Ouija boards were being produced in Baltimore, he falls off the roof of the Ouija board factory and dies. Wow. You just you have these weird details. Mm. And there is a New York Times obituary you know, identifying him. He wasn't the creator of the board, but they identified him as the creator of the board. Um, and, and they talk about the fact that he died, that he fell off the building while he was putting a flag up. And so you've got this very, very strange mm. and shrouded history to this to this game. And in addition to that, lots of stories of people having no problem with the board, but lots of stories of people who have had extensive issues yes. in their lives yes. after playing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so. It, it, and that's just part of the deception. Is it's like, oh, I didn't have any problem. Oh, I did. And so, who who do you believe? And you you, you can't ver- verify it. It's this mixed bag of, yeah. It's so that's well. Look at the Amazon reviews. The Amazon well, reviews. Yeah, also I'm sure that's illustrative, right? Well, yeah, because you get the, you see the story. You mm-hmm. see these people who are giving it one star, and they're like, oh my gosh, I had the worst experience. Don't ever buy this product. It's very mm-hmm. interesting. To, very <laughs> to revealing. Read well, and it seems to, it definitely plays on people people's you know fears, and it, you can see how the enemy, if it's really the demonic that's behind it, and I believe that it is, it's so exploitative because it it taps into people's very real pain and experiences, and so it it is an abuse of the person that when it, these these products are being marketed. Let's talk now a little bit about the the biblical you know underpinnings for all of this, because certainly we see occultic practice throughout scripture and you know god likens the sin of rebellion to witchcraft witchcraft is a very serious sin certainly in the old testament people who practiced it let's just say the the penalties were not very nice and then but you see in the the new testament as well like that's obviously a forbidden sin it's it's, it's something that's very spoken uh, it's very much spoken against but most importantly i think in the ministry of jesus he delivers people from demons. The man of the Gadarenes, you know, the the boy who was the demonic spirit was throwing him into the fire, and Mary Magdalene, several demonic spirits cast out of her. What can we see in the ministry of Jesus? And that ministry continues through us, his church now. Talk about your your exploration of Jesus's ministry with the demonic and what he said about it, and then I have some other practical questions to go after that. 
Yeah, you know, a few of the th- a few things really stuck out to me. I had never read scripture in a way that isolated evil out. You know, I always have read it in its entirety, and I feel like we have a real tendency to skip over the pieces that deal with these things, right? We mm-hmm. read the stories of the real life stories of Jesus healing people. We read the descriptions of Satan being, you know, a stealer and, and really just a thief and somebody who wants to destroy and kill and and lie and deceive culture and confuse. And we get all of that. But for the first time in writing the book, I was able to really look at those things and isolate them. And it's really quite revealing when you do that, because I, again, have always loved focusing on the good, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to understand the good if you don't really understand fully the Uh evil. And so I think that that's a real danger. We avoid the evil. And so it's so much more, I guess I saw our need, even though I've always known it, for for Christ so much more after diving into, oh my gosh, this is what the evil is. And so Uh as you go through those stories of Jesus healing which I do briefly touch on each of them in the book, there were a few things that stuck out. The first is that we're never given a reason for how people ended up in that, in that state of possession. Mm. We, confront yeah. them, we confront them in the midst of their story. They're struggling. There's desperation. They need help, right? right? And many of them have been like this for a long time, and they're looking for healing. That to me, when you look at how Scripture is designed and brought to us, is intentional in some ways. And maybe God felt like we didn't need to—we know what, we're, what we are to avoid, right? We're told that in Scripture. We're no, we know what we're not to get into, and we've talked about some of these things. But in each of those individual stories, we don't know. And that really struck me as kind of a fa- just a fascinating element of, of those particular stories, because it was the healing— that mattered. It was that Christ could heal these people and did heal them. Mm-hmm. The other thing, the other thing is that there were two children. I had never, I mean, I've read it a million times. I never really focused in on that detail because that opens up a lot of questions, right? right? How can a child become possessed? We're not talking about oppression like we were talking about or demonization. We're talking about full-on possession. And in the case of the little boy we encounter, the demons, the father says the demons are throwing him into the fire trying to kill him, right. right? I mean, so these disturbing images of kids that you really start to get into, okay, well, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. How does that happen? What responsibility does a parent have? And again, we don't know what those parents were like outside of the request and belief that Jesus could heal. And so those are two of the big pieces that I took away from that. But also, obviously, the fact that, you know, you have the guy coming out of the caves, the catacombs, and he, he wants to actually go with Jesus, right? He's, mm-hmm. He changes. He goes from this crazy man who's walking around unclothed and violent with superhuman strength, and nobody can go near him, to a guy who's begging Jesus to go with him. And so I think we sometimes overlook the healing nature of it. That's an incredible story. We talk about conversion stories. This guy was delivered, right. converted, and wanted mm-hmm. to go with Christ. So. There's just so many pieces, things you can pull out of those, of those stories, and I hate using that word sometimes because it makes them sound like they were not real things. These that were happened, real people, events, right? Yeah, exactly. Those events, you know, that are just so stirring. And I would challenge everybody. I mean, that the reason that I wrote this was because I want, I really want the church to talk about this. Mm-hmm. We need to be talking, not obsessing over it not finding a demon behind every doorway, right. but actually talking about the need for good and the reality of evil. 
What do you think, uh, just that, that last comment there just sort of made my ears prick up there, you know, finding a demon under every rock. Like, I've met Christians that, well, it's that's kind of what they do. They like, like think that everything that is bad or evil uh, is result of that. And it, it's obnoxious, but at the same time, I kind of get why there is sort of this overcompensation because for much of the church, it's they will intellectually assent to you know Ephesians six, the reality of spiritual warfare, but it doesn't really look like anything practically. Uh, so, what, give could you give some church leaders or you know prayer team ministers that are listening to this podcast some tips of like how can we start this conversation? Because I think there are a lot of people that are again, as I was just saying, the contrast between good and evil is just becoming so much more stark now. They can't deny the reality of this kind of otherworldly evil that you speak of here at length in your book. But in terms of approaching it with integrity and not shrouded in fear, because we as Christians, if we believe greater is he that is, he that is in us than he who is in the world, then we don't have any reason to be afraid. But how can, how can this get started within churches and even outside yeah. of churches? How would you suggest people go about you know, talking about this intelligently and thoughtfully? Yeah, and that's such a good question. And if I'm being honest, because I don't want to be a hypocrite, I the reason I sat on this book for two months was because I was afraid to write it. And mm. I think that, and and I feel very differently now, obviously, than I did last year. But entering into it, feeling like, am I qualified to do this? I don't want to have you know demons all over my house. Like I, you know, yeah. you start thinking, I don't want my house to have you know, all these crazy issues. And I know some people would laugh that off, but. But you realize that as Christians, you have authority over these things and that there really is nothing to fear when you are truly, you know, indwelled with Christ and you are a Christian. And so I think, you know, I've come to this totally different place of peace on all of this. And I think, you know, you brought up fear. What's happening right now, I think, and I think it's because of fear of looking strange. I think it's because of not understanding the issue is that churches are avoiding it entirely, many of them. And we did a poll, and then I'll answer your question more directly, but I wanted to mention this because it, it relates to it with HarperCollins, and we went to church leaders. So these were people, not just pastors, but people in charge of children's church and volunteers in the church, and we asked them, you know, do you believe that demons can impact culture? And 87% of them said yes. We then asked them, do you believe that a demon can impact a person's life? And over 80% of them said yes. And then we ask, you know, do you believe that pastors and churches are doing enough to address these issues? And 78% said no. Mm. Pastors and churches are not doing enough. And that was really revealing. So you have this major problem of evil that everyone believes, the vast majority believe exists, but the majority also believe that the church is not doing a sufficient job of of addressing this. And so— What lies at the root of that? What is the root of that then? I mean, because if they—I mean, this is just so I want to zero in on this, because it's like if they believe there's such a problem, and yet the church isn't addressing it, there seems to me there's this core supposition that's operating within—that's dominant within theology that, for whatever reason— causes such silence on the issue. Is there, where's the breakdown, do you think, in our way of thinking about this? Yeah, I think, I really think that in so many ways, culture has, you know, seeped into the church, right? We And, and this happens across various issues. We're seeing this happen. And when I say that, I know lots of churches are doing a great job with this too, but obviously the majority of church leaders feel like it's not being spoken about enough. So 
I think it's the fear again of looking strange. It's the it's the uncertainty of it. I mean, can you think of any other issue that is talked about as much as this one is in scripture that is avoided to this degree? I mean, it's actually kind of remarkable because I can't think of another issue, you know, that that the church has decided to basically pretend is not there or only talk about here or there or just kind of glaze over and not dive into deep enough. And the reality is I think we we live in a very here and now culture as I was saying before. I think that the church has kind of built built into that it's into its own DNA to a degree um, because we're humans and when it comes to strange things, I think we feel sometimes like it's easier to just sort of glaze over it. You know, we're not going to go deep on it. It's there. We know it existed and it matters, but you know, we're not going to we're not going to focus too much on it. Well, there's a lot, awful lot of focus on it in the New Testament and in Scripture, and it's a major part of what Jesus is doing. And so when we make that decision, what we essentially say, I think, is that we're going to ignore however this is going to manifest itself. And I think if you look at culture right now and you look at what is happening in America, it is very clear that these things are manifesting themselves right before us. You talk about bare, good and evil. All is being exposed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Okay, let's let's sort of approach the real elephant in the room because you, you talk about strange and scary things, and people hear the word exorcism. I think the immediate picture that comes to you know, many minds is you know green stuff shooting out of Linda Blair and The Exorcist, and it's just this really ugly, <laughs> scary sight. And who wouldn't be unnerved by that? Um, and yet, I, I know I think I have observed very seasoned deliverance ministers who operate with a very gentle touch and it doesn't at all look like that scene in that movie um the demonic oppression just leaves them very quietly and i've heard testimonies to that end and i'm curious to know i i think was it charles craft who's written on this but you know exorcism is not listed as among sort of the spiritual gifts in you know first corinthians 12 and 14 all that and so his take on it, I think, I hope I'm not misquoting him, was that most anybody can do it. That might have been Derek Prince. I'm mixing up my authors, but his take, since exorcism is not specifically listed as you know, a specific anointing or spiritual gift that any Christian who is known by Christ and has the Spirit of Christ living within them can pray for and minister that to people. Do you believe that's the case? And how should people go about being trained to minister in the supernatural in this way because certainly there's need and with the rising you know levels of occult interest in this country there's going to be people who are going to need to get free soon if they're ever going to come to christ and so we as christians better be prepared well yeah i mean you think of scripture telling us that people's minds the minds of the unbelievers are are blinded and you think about that and you think man this is it's so convicting but yeah i mean my experience and i talked with a variety of people you know for the this book is that this does not have to be this crazy process where heads are spinning and people are going crazy for a lot of people who are dealing with this. And of course, there are extreme situations of extreme possession where there are claims of of that that are made. In fact, the story that The Exorcist was built on, the real-life story uh, with this little boy, involves some of those crazy moments, right? And you have Mm -hmm. documentation of that as well. But for most people, it's as simple as a prayer of of going in and saying, you are not welcome here, get out. And that, to me, now, of course, what the person does, the most important person in the room. So we talk a lot about training people, and I think that's important. I think the biggest training is making sure that you're 
a Bible-believing Christian who has a good relationship with Christ and that you have the authority to do these things, right, when you when you go in to do them. But the most important person in the room is really the person being healed. It's yes. what they're going to do, right. right? Are they going to make the decision to change their life in a way that's going to prevent this from coming back seven times worse than they got it? Um, are they going to um, participate in a way that they're going to be healed? I mean, there's a case that I talk about in the book with a psychologist, a psychiatrist rather, and she was a, a Satan worshiper, and she she enjoyed obviously worshiping Satan, but then also didn't want the effect of what it was doing to her. And so she was conflicted and she went and she tried to get healing and they were not, they were not able to heal her because she was not willing to stop mm. doing what she was doing. And why so did she enjoy worshiping a, Satan? You know, I don't know. I think it's the power that you get mm, from yeah, that. And yeah. there are certain gifts maybe you feel you're getting from it. And so she was a satanic priestess and, you know, I don't know, some of her stories, she we don't know her real identity, but I actually <clears throat> have read quite a bit, and I included in the book of this well-respected psychiatrist who has dealt with her, and he's he's written on her, and she was never healed to this day, um, is is still alive and is not well, and has never been able to get healing from it because she didn't want to give that up. Now most people are desperate and they want it to stop. And there are a lot of Christians who will experience these things in in their homes or they'll feel like something is off. And everybody I've interacted with, they say it's as simple as going in, saying a peaceful prayer, commanding it out, and it it ends for those people. So it's, it's interesting that, again, we have those extreme examples, but it seems like most are not that way at all. Right, right. It is, it is something else. Could you give some sort of some final words as to, um, your heart behind this book. I often like to get sort of, if authors will let me, what changed you as you wrote this book? Like what was sort of, sort of the biggest, most profound revelation that you had as you, you know, engaged in this process? Because I don't think you can dive deep into a subject like this and not have your eyes open, certainly. But, you know, I know that even as a reporter, like I've been changed by, the articles that I'm frequently assigned to cover and how it opens my mind to worlds I didn't even know existed, but sort of knew about. And what was sort of the biggest change that you encountered as you, you took on, took this on? Yeah. I mean, there's so much to to unpack there. I think I mentioned to you, I was afraid to write it. I, I always had this uncertainty about these issues because I knew they were true. So my uncertainty wasn't there, but it was how much I wanted to engage in the reality of them being true. And I think this is the problem that the church has, too. We know in our heads that it's true, but Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily want to acknowledge in our hearts that it's true, because that calls us to then address the issue. And so for me, I went into this afraid, and then part of me, a small part, saying, I want to be the weird book person. I've already written other books that I knew God wanted me to do, and I did them. And so I had to kind of move past that and realize, like, this is something I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to do it. But then the takeaway for me was really taking a deeper look, and I've always done this, it's a little clearer now, of good versus evil. The fact that the world around us, this is is an individual issue, right? Individuals have to confront this issue as Christians dealing with it, but that the church collectively has to also confront this issue, and that if we're going to have any real conversation about what is happening in the world around us, ignoring this issue is insane. It makes no sense, and we've, we've got to confront it. Uh, And I think for me, um, just really, really recognizing the need 
for understanding evil. I, I almost would argue, and I don't want to get myself in trouble, but that we can't fully understand good 100% and the need for it unless we understand that evil mm. and what and what yeah. that what that actually means. So that was that was my biggest takeaway was like, wow, I, I actually need to understand this and be have my mind open to the reality that there are hurting people whose eyes have been blinded in this world and that I don't want to be that per I want to make sure I never let myself slip in any kind of state that would allow me to become in, in any state anywhere near what that looks like in practice. So that's a lot. No, but it's it's a good, it's a good sobering word. I feel we need to be, you know, I I totally have great hope for the gospel and for for the Lord to do extraordinary things in our midst. And I think, you know, I, I don't like doom and gloom and doomsday kind of talk amongst Christians because the hope of the gospel has to mean something. The joy of the Lord is our strength or it isn't. And yet, in tension with that, we have to be sober in these times. And I think those words are, are very well well said. So, Billy, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. It's been a very scintillating conversation. 